when you think about these scenarios where plants are going to produce flour that's worth $1,000 wholesale, and some are much, much higher, and certainly some are much, much lower, paying attention to what goes into that plant where you can enhance your product to where you can increase your yield. If you could get an extra five or 10 grams out of a plant, you might think that's very insignificant. It's really the difference between some farms going under and some farms being wildly successful. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. Really excited to welcome Michael Johnson to the show. Michael, love if you'd give a little intro about yourself and your work. So I appreciate you having me. I'm Michael Johnson. I'm the Chief Executive Officer here at Metric. I've been in this role here for a little bit more than six months, I think. been with Metric about a year longer than that and advised a bit before then. Spent a lot of time in software and technology and trying to help build businesses and hopefully with Metric solve some problems out there for, for your listeners and do the very best we can to make Metric the best partner we can be. All right, Metric, very interesting business. Obviously on the cutting edge of an industry that everybody's talking about. Give the story, please. Yeah, Metric is, it's really a fascinating story. It's born one way, shape or form about 30 years ago from our founder, Jeff Wells. Jeff is just a hell of a guy. One of the best people I've ever met, really just humble gentleman, guy that's a church on Sunday, never heard him swear a person. And we're in, in a rural part not so rural, I guess they probably wouldn't like if I said rural, but we're in a town called Lakeland, which is not super rural, but is a little bit more rural than Tampa or Orlando, which is where Lakeland is in between. Out here, there's a lot of agriculture and there's a lot of logistics, a lot of warehouses, transportation, things like that. Jeff got his start building software primarily for production facilities and agricultural purposes. And in the late 90s, early 2000s, I started to run into a lot of interest in the agricultural supply chain in particular in leveraging the use of RFID technology in their processes. A lot of people find tremendous workflow efficiencies, much better visibility, stronger anti-counterfeiting functionality in this process. He didn't know anything about it. So he spent a long time, spent time at the University of Florida, spent time at Georgia Tech University, partnered with a number of folks in different companies like Motorola, has participated and contributed to a number of patents, and we hold 10 patents of our own. He started building out different applications for the software to be paired with RFID technology, and that included use of the technology in Air Cargo, which is a business that spun out some years ago, and a couple of other iterations, really exciting opportunities. And he got a call one day from somebody that he worked with in, in Motorola, and indicated like, hey, we, we heard about this RFP for the state of Colorado. It's not for us because cannabis. And as I mentioned, Jeff's a pretty unique guy and definitely not the kind of guy that you would have thought would have reached out cannabis and ended up getting to know a little bit better. And because he's the nicest guy, he'll take a meeting with anybody. I got to know these guys in Colorado and appreciate what they were trying to do and was impressed and intrigued by the opportunity they were trying to solve for. And so ultimately, we wanted to consult and maybe actually this product could work and ultimately became metric. And so the initial application of the RFID functionality was primarily an anti-counterfeit element because it's, I'm sure it's possible for people to counterfeit. It's fairly hard to 
both print on a tag and then also take the RFID inlay and also code that appropriately. And we use a 16 character identifier that's encrypted with something we call hex ID. And so there's some fairly, fairly sophisticated functionality that helps support what they were trying to solve for in Colorado. As more and more states have opened the doors to legal cannabis, both from a medical and adult use perspective, metrics has evolved and become, become the leading partner for these different states and what they're trying to solve for. And so that's been about now about 10, 12 years in the making. And it's been a challenge. I think it's a fairly similar story that a number of startups run into. You grow really big, you try and catch up to that scale. Certainly some challenges I think that folks have had in trying to figure out how the legal markets work, how metric can work within those legal markets, how it can keep up with the growth. And so we've, we've spent a lot of time trying to focus on that. Me being a part of the business is, is I think a testament to our commitment to making the transition from that startup sort of phase, even though it's about 30-year-old startup, into a grown-up phase to where we can function in a way that we think is going to be more effective and a better overall experience for all of our customers. And I use that term very broadly because states, state governments are historically our customers, but we also recognize that the vast majority of folks that use metric are actual licensees in the state. And then, of course, we integrate with over 600 different businesses and so they're our customers as well. And so we treat everybody in the same kind of a way that we're committed to them having the very best experience. And we're trying to create opportunities to support and harden our platform while also searching for opportunities to delight everybody that participates in, in the metric ecosystem that I think will be successful. And so that's what we're focused on. Maybe a bit too much. Let me know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's it. It was really interesting. Obviously, the regulatory landscape around cannabis is a hot topic these days. And so I guess the picture of that, that workflow is that uh, essentially these regulatory bodies, which would be the States or somebody like that just wants to make sure this product is legit. And it came from where they said it's going to come from, and they could track it through essentially through the supply chain and these tags and technology allow that chain of custody to be tracked properly. And that's exactly right. The, a lot of folks look at the cannabis supply chain and think this is just a linear, like one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one thing, and it's not. It, and we get asked questions periodically about the application of blockchain and what we're providing. And while it certainly could be applied, and I think you can make anything work in any situ situation if you want, there, there's a lot more nuance to tracking the activities and the events from a plant, all from germination, which we generally don't see a whole lot of, mostly from clones, all the way to the retail sale. And we track over 350 discrete events in that process. And so what we really refer to it as is more of a genealogy. And the reason it's a genealogy is because you're growing a plant, but that plant itself, at least in a mother plant scenario, could be broken off into clones. Those plants could grow and those plants could be broken off into clones. You get into situations where plants are trimmed. You add nutrients, you add pesticides, you water them differently. You have a certain amount of light that's on them. You strive for a certain level of humidity. You get to a place where you're eventually going to harvest. You move the plants from one room to another room because you have different environments in one space versus another space. And those environments make more sense when you're on the first month of your growth cycle. And these go on and on. I may harvest a plant and then break the flower into multiple boxes that go to multiple different places. And then those boxes get combined with flower from another place. And so being able to develop that one many relationship is a lot more convoluted than I think the average person kind of appreciates because the average person isn't in metric for the full supply chain. They're in metric for their part, for the cultivation part or the transportation part or distribution or manufacturing, so on and so forth. And it makes me think what you just described 
Is that not also applicable? I don't know, applicable for oranges and apples and things like that. Is it materially different than agriculture in general? It is and it's not. So we get that question a lot because you're not seeing a scenario where people are individually tagging and tracking an individual apple, but it's not an apple. Right? Apples, if, if apples had the effect on you that cannabis does, well, you'd probably right. get a lot of apples. So it, it's not the same thing. And we get that question a lot. And when you get into the type of industry that cannabis is more akin to, which is definitely much more of your agricultural products that are much higher or much, much higher value or have certain levels, certain features to them that make them special. So like, for example, one of the most expensive plants in the world is, but still not more expensive than cannabis generally, is orchids in Madagascar that grow vanilla, right? Those plants are tracked so closely. It would definitely make a cannabis grower cringe a little bit. That's how, that's a level of detail that you're getting. And when you think about these scenarios where plants are going to produce flour that's worth $1,000 wholesale, and some are much, much higher, and certainly some are much, much lower, paying attention to what goes into that plant, where you can enhance your product to where you can increase your yield. If you could get an extra five or 10 grams out of a plant, you might think that's very insignificant. It's really the difference between some farms going under and some farms being wildly successful. And as we get deeper into understanding this industry, which is, at least in the legal space, fairly nascent, it's infant stages. You're going to see tremendous opportunity for folks to start to pay attention and refine their craft and get deeper into the science of maximizing whatever it is that they value in terms of what they're producing, whether it's yield or quality or some combination thereof. Tracking things closely is massively beneficial to the industry. And I think a lot of folks don't necessarily appreciate the gift that the industry has in having this standardized framework for which you're able to track your product and everybody that participates in the industry is also able to speak the exact same language. It takes a long time in industries before standards emerge. And here we are with metric experiencing life where the standard exists right off the bat. And to me, the power and the magic behind that is, is really hard to fully appreciate and comprehend where we would be without a similar standard. It, in that standard a taxonomy or data model, did that evolve from the prior work before the cannabis days or did that take off at, at that point then? Yeah, the knowledge would definitely have been informed by some of the prior work and experience in supply chain and certainly in the ag tech space. But metric, even though it evolved from something, the actual product, the actual product ultimately has been rewritten into what you today. So initially the expectation in Colorado was that we could take what we have and it wasn't here, but the way I understand it is we could take what we have and apply it. And we got into that and it didn't really work exactly that way. And so there's so much of the product and actually all of it is completely indistinguishable from anything that existed prior. Talking about your journey, it looked like from my standpoint, I was just like looking at your resume, it evolved out of the finance function to the now executive side. And I wonder what's that? I talked to a lot of CEOs who have grown out of sales or grown out of marketing. And I'd say like some subset is out of financial uh, background. And I like to probe into those things and look at what is that? Because then you probably had to then pick up other, a lot of other skills that are just like not taught in that track. Yeah, that's exactly right. I didn't intend on going the accounting way. College was a little bit of a, I graduated college right before the, uh, the 2007, 2008 recession hit and it, we're in Florida. And so it, it hit us a little bit earlier. And so you start to see situations where folks who go to school aren't graduating or not, or they're graduating, they're just not finding great jobs. They might end up thinking that they're going to take over the world and they end up 
selling cell phones at a mall kiosk. And this was a real thing that happened for folks. And so for me, it was happened to be at that time taking those core accounting classes and doing fairly well. And professor said, yeah, people can't seem to get jobs, but accountants seem to be able to. All right. You can do anything with an accounting degree, but you can't do accounting with any other degree. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. And so I got started working at PwC, which is one of the big four accounting firms. And I learned pretty quickly that not everybody loves auditors and not everybody loves the transaction advisors. And generally, when you can find ways to, to solve problems, identify problems, or be creative in making their lives easier, you tend to have, you tend to make more friends. And so starting to pay attention from an operational perspective early on is really what I think has enabled me to be in, in this position and be successful. And then moving out of a public accounting where you see so much and you just learn so much more in, in one year's time than I think the average person might in five to get into a position to where working in software businesses that are mostly backed by private equity or venture capital, where the, the everything is measured there's a lot of attention that's paid to every nickel is tracked and you have a really good sense of what's happening. So much of that weight falls on the back of folks in the finance department. And you get to see so much of the business, the inner workings of really every element of the business, whether it's marketing or sales or HR, you understand how the money flows and you understand what the impact is. And so I think that's helped me understand and appreciate what's most important in terms of this role. And really it's not rocket science and a lot of common sense is a common practice. And I just, I firmly believe that if we do a good enough job at honing in on the most important things that our customers care about, and we really strive to have a singular focus of, of strong customer satisfaction and delighting and a delightful experiences, we're going to be successful for us and for any software company. That means making products that do exactly what they're supposed to do. And I think Metric has had some challenges in trying to adjust to the different changes in the regulatory landscape, different changes in use cases, and necessarily necessarily has been bouncing around a lot of different ways. We've got to get to a place where we are the trusted and most reliable partner to these businesses, to the government regulators, and to our integrators. And really very simple for us. We're going to delight the customer. We're going to do the very best we can at being the very best partner. And I truly believe everything else will fall into place. Did you have as much customer orientation in sort of CFO kind of roles? And that typically wouldn't have much of a customer facing type of disposition. So you got now you have to think about product and customer success. And there's a lot, all these things that wouldn't really be in, in your purview before. Yeah. It- Except in the sense that like on the finance side, you're used to trying to get as efficient and make every dollar go as far as possible. The biggest bluebird for a finance person is when more money comes in. More money only comes in from having better customer relationships and having better products to sell. And so you become very much appreciative of folks that are committed to building great products and delivering great customer experience. Because it's not, there's only so many different ways you can stretch the dollar. Ultimately, at some point you have to you got to make sure the dollars keep coming in, and you got to find new ways to bring in those dollars. And for us, I think we're in a market that is naturally going to grow. I think we're well positioned to continue to grow with that market. But we're only going to be successful if our customers and the folks that uh, experience the metric ecosystem and are a part of the metric ecosystem continue to allow us to be a part of that growth path. And so, it's what it comes down to, it's very it's a very simple thing. It's something that Sounds a lot easier for me to say out loud than it probably will be to execute. I do think every day we're getting better, but I think every day we still find opportunities to, that or we find things that are hidden under a rock that we didn't know existed. So it's not perfect, 
the spinning wheel is not going to go away tomorrow, but it's going to go away this year. And we're not going to have these negative situations that I think some folks have experienced with metric in the past. And I think we're making that transition as a partner from being required to desired. And it's exciting. Yeah. So talk about that delightful customer experience disposition. And it's like, because you, you know, as a, as a leader, right, you can't please everybody, right? So you have this sort of idea of we don't want to have just the rounding error type of experience. We want to be delightful. We want to be desired. And then I imagine you, you have a pretty good sense then of the business metrics or KPIs from your finance brain going, how do you know that? How do you actually measure that? A lot of businesses don't. They're sticking their finger in the air and measuring the wind and Maybe there's NPS or some kind of janky thing like that, but how do you know those things are happening for a business? You don't, and you don't know when you do find out, you find out after it's already done. So it happens gradually and then suddenly. And what I've been paying attention to is a lot of listening tours, both internally and externally. So we just had a quarterly town hall. So I got the updated numbers because we do measure everything very closely, or at least we're starting to. And with our internal employees, I try and meet with every single employee at least twice a year. We have about 150 employees now. I'm not going to meet with them one-on-one individually. That's That would take a bit of time. And I'm sure some of them don't all want to meet with me one-on-one. But we have these small group sessions where there's four to six people. And I've had 26 of those so far this year. And so we continue to pay attention to what their concerns are, what their observations are. The next great idea to come out of metric probably going to come from our internal employees or our customers. I don't, I'm, I have no, there's no illusions that I'm going to come up with, no Steve Jobs. I'm not going to come up with the next greatest thing, but we're surrounded by really special people in metric and we've got really tremendous customers and partners that want to see metric succeed and want to see the industry succeed. And so paying close attention to them is important. I would say the other thing that I pay attention to is I take customer support calls. And so I don't, I can't pretend that I do them all the time, but I've definitely done more than a few. And what you learn in being on the front lines and having conversations with folks that are challenged challenged with metric is you really get a chance to experience their plight in a way that you wouldn't do if you were even just listening to the calls. I'm responsible. I document it in our system and make sure we follow through and get back with them and understanding how that works, but puts you in a position to where you have a much better kind of sense of, of the pulse. And I'd say that the next thing is I will have a conversation with any person, anytime for any reason. You call me 24 hours a day. I want you to. If you're having problems with metric, if you've got a way that metric can be better, not everything we have is broken. Some things are working well. They could just work so much better. And so I want to know about those two. And I'll have a conversation with anybody at any point in time. I want to. I don't think most people take me up on that. I prefer that they did. I truly believe that that if we can really get to know the story and share our story, that we can align those stories to where we can find ways that metric can be this really big benefit. You're absolutely right. You're not everybody's going to be happy, but certainly not everybody has to be sad. Yeah, sad on that. As you inventory today and look back, and it's always a good time to do that as we record, we're approaching the end of the year. And I like to ask people, as you evaluate, I don't know, maybe the last few years or even the last decade, what do you wish you knew back then? If you could send the secret message back to your yourself in the past, what would you say? It's very lonely at this level. You think you want to get there, but it's, it's different. So I think that the very best leaders are the ones that realize that they're the ones with the least power in the organization. And I think that if you do a good enough job at realizing and paying attention to the fact that there is no such thing as this vertical hierarchy, it's actually like an inverted pyramid. I only have the ability to have this power, so to speak, because uh, the folks on our executive team grant me that. If they did, all of them just decided they're going to mutiny, I wouldn't be here. 
And they're only in their roles because folks that are behind them support them and want to make them as successful as possible. And this notion that I got to get to the top or I'm finding an opportunity to get more and more experience or more and more oversight or an opportunity to make a bigger difference is really only available because of permission granted from other people in the business. And if you take that approach, and I feel like we are taking that approach here. If you take that approach, you realize one in one definitely can make three or 303. You have much more enriched relationships. You're more committed to your craft. You have a lot more fun. And so I'd say in the last couple of years, I've moved into these different roles. I've been CFO three times, I think. And so you're like, well, CFO, that's fairly cool. CEO, it's not. You think it is. I thought it was. I was wrong. You really are. You're in a position to where if you mess up, if I really mess something up here, there's 150 people whose jobs are I'm looking out for. In every other role I've ever had, you mess something up, there's just me. And it's it's a really different experience, a humbling experience, but it's so much more impactful and it helps you make so much better decisions, build those better relationships and really become a much better person. So you didn't expect some of those aspects then of, yeah, I reached the top and, oh, it turns out that the top is in fact only one spot, but it's, it is humbling. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe then I would turn it on to, you know, advice for people that are aspiring to, to run a a kind of, I'll say startup that obviously it's not huge, but also not tiny. So you're in that spot where leadership of the next order of magnitude is really why you get hired at a role like that. I would encourage people to find their wedge, find their superpower. What are they doing that's different than anybody else is doing? I talked to somebody yesterday and they're looking at getting into a different, a different vertical and treating that kind of like a startup. In our space, there's we print 100 million RFID enabled tags every year that go on plants and packages. There's very few businesses out there that do anything on the front end to improve efficiency for licensees enabling that RFID element. I would build that tomorrow. I would build a lot of them, like a lot of functionality to to work because it works in every other supply chain. We just don't have a lot of folks that are taking advantage of it in cannabis. And so for somebody and for hopefully for many somebodies, that's going to be a massive wedge for them to do something nobody else is doing. For others, that's something that nobody else is doing doesn't need to be this big moonshot. We're at Metric, we started doing one very specific thing, and that's tracking a plant from seed to sale for the purpose of regulation. And that grew and grew, and it was a tremendous application, and our founder couldn't be a better person, and I couldn't be more excited for the success that we've had as a result of him and the success that we continue to have to honor him. It doesn't need to be, you don't need to boil the ocean. It can be just one thing, and that wedge, that superpower, it exists in probably the most hidden places, places that you never thought about, but they're also right under your nose. Like they're hidden, but they're right there. You can find them. What, what's been your experience around building teams? Uh, I talked to a lot of founders and executives and people at that stage of 100, 150 types of folks, and I find that there's a great deal of people collecting, which is when you get to a certain stage in your career, you have a pack almost. It's not all new people. It's like you're not the new kid in class. So you bring along some of those critical mind readers. Has that been your experience? Yeah. So Tony Fidel, guy that founded Nest and was the original designer of the iPod, he and he's done many other things. He wrote a book called Build, which I encourage anybody to read. And in that book, and I, was, I happened to be invited to, to spend an hour with him and a few other people that, that our investor, Cassavarity, put together. And so we spent an hour with him. And I asked him something very specific from his book that's very relevant to this question. He talks a lot about seed crystals. 
So seed crystals are people that you bring into the business that have the ability to bring other people into the business. And they're people that you would bring in to build something off of. They're creating a seed that can really form a part of the business or the business overall. And so that's not going to work in businesses that are really big because, or businesses where you've got really well-defined operations and systems and processes and things like that. These are people that come in and take over and transform. Um, we have found so many of those and I'm so gifted or I'm so blessed to be able to, and we're, we are gifted to be able to have them. A lot of them I, are people that I've met in previous lives. In fact, half of our executive team I've worked with in, in a diff, different place. In fact, every place I've ever worked, we brought people with us from from another place that we were at, every single place. Whether it's my first C, CFO job or this one here. I mean, I, our, our CFO here, Justin Green, I've worked with on multiple occasions. We have a, a number of folks that when you find somebody that's really special, that matches up to you, that you have fun working with, that you can rely on, that you can have trust with, and that you can speak the same language, there's just no bigger multiplier to bring into the business to be able to do that. So I absolutely support what you just described in terms of people that you move into different roles, you bring a pack with you. It's a real honor to be able to work with people that want to work with you again. And I'm very appreciative and we're certainly honored to have them with us. But we the executive team at Metric. I think there's two that have been here for more than a year or in their role for more than a year total. So the entire executive team, there's nine of us, are brand new or even within the last year or new to our role within the last year. So what's the story there for a 30-year-old company that has a brand new executive team? And I'm not playing 60 minutes here. So if there's things you don't want to say, that's fine. But I think there's lessons that are always available in stories like that. Yeah, there are. For Metric, it was really this this hyper-focus on we're going to do this one thing and we're going to pay attention to exactly what the government needs. And it doesn't matter what anybody else needs. And we've been a black box. And the reality is that like we're... It, it, let's say we wanted to do that the right way. Let's say we wanted to say like our number one priority is to make our government customers happy because in many cases it should be. I'm sure others don't feel that way, but in, in many cases it should be. Is creating a situation where it's easier and more effective for the licensees to be more compliant, better for the government? Probably. It's better for the regulatory structure? Probably. And so how are we finding ways to make their lives easier in, in every sense? I don't want any of our government partners to have to feel calls about, yeah, metrics not working or we don't like metric or we shouldn't have to put things in. That doesn't help them be successful at all. It doesn't, we certainly don't make the laws or the rules. In many cases, the regulator doesn't make the laws either. And sometimes depending on the state, they have the ability to make rules, but sometimes they don't. And so it's not our job to make the rules, certainly not our job to enforce the rules, but it can be our job to make it easier for people to coexist and to be successful within the confines of the rules and to do what they need to do. And that's what I mean when I talked earlier about the customer experience and delighting everybody that had, that interacts with Metro. And I just think that's missing. And the sad thing is that our founder is, he's the best man you've ever met. He's just such a good human being. And any bad experience that anybody's ever had in Metric is not, you, you just can't imagine a situation where it wouldn't actually deeply bother him. But the way Metric has been structured historically has not been in a way that those things get to him. And so we're, we're shifting our focus and we're, we're opening ourselves up and we're trying to make metric really be something that, that, as I mentioned earlier, is desired, not just required. Awesome. So I warned you ahead. We always ask, or I always ask the guests, you're talking to a bunch of leaders of 
B2B companies and I'll count B2G in there because I think that there's, I did government, just the government, large software package sales for years and years. And I can tell you there's no tougher customer than doing RFPs for state governments. At, at any rate, you're a leader of a company here and what is on your radar that you think everybody, regardless of industry or place here should be paying attention to? There are those blips that show up when you're exposed to a lot of that information. And those are the things I'm always interested in. Hey, everybody, pay attention. I think these things are going to matter. Yeah, I think efficiency is going to matter. In the cannabis space, you've got these folks that were able to really have you know, a lot of success in producing pounds that were four or $5,000 a pound. And it's not the case anymore. I, do I think it's going to stay this low for a long time? I don't. I do think it will regress to a mean, but I don't think we're going to get on average four and 5,000 pounds on a sustainable basis for a long time. So I pay attention to efficiency. How are you being more efficient in getting whatever it is that you're trying to prove out or create with your product? And for some folks, that's just a higher yield. And for some folks, it's more of a quality, quality output. For some folks, it's going to be a combination. But you're, you have all of this data and anybody in, B2, in, in the B2B space of any kind, whether it's cannabis or not, you have all of this data. What are you doing with the data? How are you learning from it? And I don't mean data in the sense this Facebook Cambridge Analytica type of a way of telling people's personal data. That's not, uh, frankly, that's something that, that I couldn't even under, it would just be, a, it would be a terrible use case for data. It'd be so tragic because there's that's the least valuable application of just data is selling it in the raw form. It's about the learning. How are you actually making your craft better? What are you doing with that information to, to grow better, faster, stronger? And that's really where the gold line is. If you're taking that information, you're turning it into ways to be more efficient and more effective with whatever your craft is, there, there's really nothing better. And I don't think that there's any business that's truly fully recession-proof, but if you are always trying to be, be better and realize that everybody around you is also trying to be better, so you're, just, you're doing more than just merely keeping up, you're going to find yourself in a situation where even though you might have some ups and downs, you're going to fare better than average. And I just don't think enough people appreciate what that means and they don't take the time to learn. And there's a quote, and I don't know who it was, it is it's something, the effect of being too busy to, to learn is the moral equivalent of being too hungry to eat. And it's, it's just so true. And the data is out there and you can learn so much from it, live a much more full life. I do see now increasing chatter around, obviously, oh, let's cut costs. And people are talking about, well, I got to cut my marketing budget. I got to do this and got to do that. And it's like, I see, and I challenge, there is often not as much focus on, I got to improve my gross margins. And I think like high impact efficiency and data around cost of goods sold and like the whole delivery chain there lives above the line. And I, I will very often challenge businesses to say, you know, what's this cutting below the line stuff? What about up there? And I don't know if you have any opinions about that, but it occurs to me on a daily basis now. That's where the discipline should exist. I tell our team, if you're not trying to get a quarter turn on margin every quarter, you got we're falling behind. And it's not even so much that we're that we are, we're not trying to achieve some kind of different goal. It's that everybody out there is trying to get better. Every single company, every competitor, every future competitor, they're all trying to get better. So if you don't build constant improvement into your, your like the fiber of what you're doing, you're going to be in a tough spot. And really the only way to do that is in your, is in the bread and butter on actually how you produce whatever it is you're producing. And that's going to happen below, above the margin line for sure. hundred percent. My first CFO job actually was with a software company in the marketing space. And it's really common for people to slash marketing immediately, like times are tough. 
cutting margin. And I think that's because the average person doesn't really get into the details and nuances of how effective marketing can be. There's a lot of science behind the value of marketing. And there's no like, all of a sudden, I'm just going to turn this faucet on and turn it off. It doesn't work like that. And so if you're going to slash your marketing budget completely, you're probably going to find yourself in a tough spot You know, when things start to turn around because people forgot about you. You're not keeping that running. And it could really hurt you to go into that. The other thing is that if you're just going to cut marketing, there's a bottom to that. Eventually, you can only cut so deep. At some point, you have to work on efficiency in the operations. And I would absolutely recommend anybody that's building a business to think long and hard about what their margin profile is and how they're able to find efficiencies and to really understand that as they grow, that the same applications and the same processes won't work anymore. And that means necessarily that your margin profile probably degrades a bit before it gets better. So what I mean by that is like everybody has like metric, for example, has had some performance challenges for a bit of time, for a long time. And a lot of that had to do with the way the product was hosted. The cloud hosting application was a product called Rackspace, which for a while was like the best there was. And of course now it's in Microsoft Azure and Google cloud services are much, much more superior. But for a long time, you get to this place where like metric is probably too big for this product, but it costs so much more money to get to the, to get to the next one, right? And so you end up in a situation where if I make this decision, even though I'm going to be better off, assuming I keep going, I keep growing, it's so expensive now that my margins are going to materially degrade. Can I afford that? And so finding the balance on that and generally speaking, executing on those tools earlier than later is the way to go because you tend to find out if there's a tool that you need and don't pay for it. Some time goes by, you end up, you paid for it anyways, you end up paying for it anyways, but you don't actually have it. It turns into a bit, a bit of a challenge. So I'm a bit obsessed with gross margin, but I also grew up in the finance space. So I'm admittedly biased. I'm totally with you on that. I love the way you explained it. This financing ought to be used. Like good financing strategy is about taking that next step up to achieve scale and benefit ultimately from that next growth margin. And in addition to that, now let's use some of that financing to fuel the marketing having made that leap. And I don't often see People do that. So applaud this feedback and thank you for agreeing with me. You've been a wonderful guest. <laughs> did my job. <laughs> Michael, it's been fun. If anybody's resonating with this stuff and wants to take a look at the business or your own channels, what's the best way to reach out to you? I like to talk to people directly. So please feel free to reach out to me, shoot me an email, michael.johnson at metric.com. So M-I-C-H-A-E-L dot J-O-H-N-S-O-N, probably the most vanilla name you can think of metric.com and i try and respond to every email i do the very best i can to to hear what the concerns are and what the opportunities look like my biggest request is that you actually just reach out most people don't and metric is m-e-t-r-c so correct ditch the i there's got to be some kind of marketing message in there right <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate you for coming. Thanks for coming out and sharing all the insights and we look forward to getting the updated story maybe next year Likewise, Ledge, big fan of the podcast. Good luck. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.